Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 55 of the show, and uh, we just did an episode last week, but in these last seven days, holy cow, plenty of drama to get into, plenty of news. This is an absolutely loaded episode. Uh, College football world has been turned upside down with the coaching carousel. Major League Baseball free agency has been hitting it hard, and uh, now they're they're in the... uh, beginning stages of a lockout, so we'll talk about that and uh, do some brief uh, standings updates, the uh, NHL and the NBA, and then of course we'll do uh, we'll do a college football playoff ranking update as well as uh, top 25 men's college basketball ranking update since we have not covered that since the season has started. So there is absolutely a ton to get into, and we're going to start off like we usually do in the PGA Tour. And uh, since last week was Thanksgiving, there was no uh, tour event, so to speak. The only golf event that was that was happening was the match, and it was the fifth edition of the match. Of course, you've previously seen, uh, you know, Tom Brady and Phil Mickelson tee it up against uh, Aaron Rodgers and Tiger Woods, and all, you know all that. And so it was basically this this year's edition was one v one, so mano y mano. It was Brooks Kepka versus Bryson DeChambeau. Now, if you follow golf, uh, and even if you don't, you've definitely seen some stories uh, on how these guys just don't like each other. There's been kind of a newly found rivalry between the two that's really developed in the last, say, six months or so, four to six months. And uh, they did play together on the Ryder Cup team for the U.S. and put their differences aside to win that, but... uh, there has definitely been some hostility between Kepka and DeChambeau. And so the two took to the Wynn Golf Course in Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, this past Friday, Black Friday, and did a one-on-one 12-hole match at the Wynn Golf Course. And I tuned into that. I watched the whole thing. The commentary was great between Phil Mickelson and Charles Barkley on the mic. They provided some uh, absolutely hilarious entertainment. I definitely see... Uh, some commentary in Phil Mickelson's uh, future whenever he decides to hang the clubs up. But uh, just it was a, a beautiful course to win. I didn't even know that existed there. It's a luxury golf course right on the strip there. The scenery was beautiful. The course was beautiful. During the match, uh, of course, Brooks Kepka and Bryson DeChambeau both played with uh, ear pods in uh, so they could hear the commentary uh, live stream. They could be asked questions uh, while they were practicing their swings to hit. Even during the middle of their backswings, uh, Mickelson, Barkley, and, and uh, the TNT 
commentators were were talking and it was kind of a really relaxed environment they had the golf carts out to drive between the holes and up to their balls to help expedite the the process since it was a 1v1 it was very very cool to watch very great course and um you know in the end uh, Brooks Kepka beat Bryson DeChambeau four and three in a 12-hole match the, the match actually ended on the ninth green when Bryson DeChambeau conceded uh, Brooks Kepka's putt. So it only took nine holes for Brooks to win. Uh, Bryson did not win any of the holes. Um, he lost four holes to Brooks. And um, he did, though, Bryson did win the longest drive and closest to the pin competitions. Uh, but but Kepka really came out. And honestly, <clears throat> you know, DeChambeau said, he hadn't played golf in two months, which means that he essentially has not played competitive golf uh, since the Ryder Cup, which it was pretty evident that that was the case. Uh, DeChambeau was all over the place. Uh, I'm not sure how many fairways he hit uh, with his driver in those nine holes. It didn't look like, I, th- I think he only hit one, maybe two, um, but uh, he was all over the place. His putting was just off. Uh, he kept missing everything by an inch. Uh, and just it was not not very pretty for DeChambeau. He made sure to mention uh, twice on the broadcast, once during the round and then once after the round, that uh, he had not played in two months, and that was definitely evident. And then on the other side, Brooks Kepka, he looked like he was in major championship form, and he even cracked a joke about it if you were watching. Um, yeah, Brooks just looked on point. He looked like normal Brooks Kepka. Uh, when he's focused, he might be the very best golfer in the world, uh, especially in a one-on-one situation. And uh, Kepka was ready to play. DeChambeau was not. DeChambeau showed up more so for the uh, the gimmick. You know, Brooks made it abundantly clear that he's still not friends with Bryson, doesn't want to play with Bryson. And uh, the whole thing was, I mean, it was it was well put together. They both complimented each other on their games, but. Uh, in the end, uh, Kepka did beat Bryson DeChambeau. Uh, so that settles that for now. Now, I don't think it was an even match because I think Brooks has probably been playing or practicing, whereas DeChambeau has not. So, um, yeah, I think uh, I, I think DeChambeau did himself a disservice. Um, if they ever do a match between these two again, uh, I would fully expect DeChambeau to be more prepared because he was... Frankly, it was kind of embarrassing, just the way that Kepka was was stomping him into the ground. But uh, so that was the only thing that took place last week. This weekend is the Hero World Challenge, which is a unique tournament. It's a limited field. Uh, this year, it's twenty players only, which is actually the most it's it's ever been. Um, there's a one million dollar prize, a three and a half million dollar total purse for all twenty players, but the winner gets a million of that. And I'll just list off, since there's only 20 golfers, I'll just list off the golfers in the field so you can see what kind of firepower we're dealing with. It's Tyrell Hatton, Matthew Fitzpatrick, Scotty Scheffler, Sam Burns, Webb Simpson, Daniel Berger, Tony Finau, Harris English, Abraham Anser, Patrick Reed, Henrik Stenson, Victor Hovland, Justin Rose, Xander Shoffley, Colin Morikawa, Rory McIlroy, Justin Thomas, Brooks Kepka, Bryson DeChambeau, and Jordan Spieth. So they're grouped in uh, pairs of two, staggered tee times. Uh, the course itself is 
the Albany course, which is in New Providence, Bahamas. It's a par 72. The distance is 7,414 yards, so it's a pretty long course. Uh, interesting thing about the course is that it has five par threes and five par fives. Um, and it is a very difficult course. Of course, it's in the Bahamas, so there's a lot of wind, a lot of water, and there's a lot of sand, uh, which makes sense for a beach course. And uh, all of that combined makes for a very difficult uh, round of golf. Now, the field is obviously the best of the best. Now, that, that field is comprised of winners from this previous year, uh, along with some some kind of combination that they use uh, between wins the previous season and official world golf rankings. And so that's how they come up with uh, 20 of the top players in the world. So, um, you know, you don't see John Rahm in there. I'm not sure if he just uh, declined the invite to go or, or whatever, but um, it's a solid field of players, obviously. Uh, it's definitely going to be a good weekend of golf. The par 72 makes it uh, to where I think you'll, you probably will see some low scores um, just because a lot of these guys have, have been playing. You know, Morikawa just won in Dubai last weekend. Rory was there, played really well, um, didn't win. But, you know, Kepka looked like he was on point last week in the match. So uh, a lot of these guys have probably been playing. So it's probably going to be some pretty high-level golf. I'll definitely be tuned into that this weekend. So that's just a real quick... Uh, what's been going on in the PGA Tour. So if you're looking for some good golf, uh, the best of the best will be out there in the Bahamas this weekend at the Hero, Hero World Challenge. So be sure and tune into that. But we'll move on to the National Football League and uh, do an update there. We are through 12 weeks of the NFL season, beginning week 13 this week with a Thursday night matchup between the Dallas Cowboys and the New Orleans Saints. And the teams have only played one game since our last episode, which was this past weekend. So uh, the standings really haven't changed that much. Uh, I don't feel the need to go through team by team and do a, an actual read off the records to you like we normally do. But uh, we'll just catch up on some news that, that has happened. Now, this past week in week 12, we had two more games that were decided uh, on the final play of the game, which brings the season total to 25 such games which again is the most through this point in the season in NFL history. 12 weeks of games, 25 decided by uh, uh decided on the final play, which is, you know, roughly two per week. So, I would expect to see more of that moving forward. It's just been a really competitive NFL season, and oddly enough, the two games last week that were decided on the final play both occurred on Thanksgiving. Now we, you know, we have three Thanksgiving Day games. We talked about them last week. The early game was the Chicago Bears and the Detroit Lions. The afternoon game was the Las Vegas Raiders and the Dallas Cowboys. And the nightcap was the Buffalo Bills and the New Orleans Saints. Now, the first two games, the, the Bears, Lions, Raiders, Cowboys games, were super close and competitive. And and ironically enough, like I said, both of those games were the uh, the two games that were decided on the final play. So it it uh, gave us some good holiday drama. Um, of course, the Bears won on a last-second field goal to beat the Lions. Another tough loss for Detroit, uh, especially since they didn't have DeAndre Swift, who had gotten hurt in that game. He'll probably – he's out this week, week 13, might miss week 14 as well. So keep an eye on that. But the game between the Las Vegas Raiders and the Dallas Cowboys, 
uh, was the most watched NFL regular season game on any network since 1990. Of course, CBS held the broadcast for that one, and uh, CBS said that uh, the estimated average viewership was 38.5 million viewers. So that was the most watched NFL regular season game, and it was a good game. Went into overtime. You know, Dak took the Cowboys on a on a two-minute drive down the field to score touchdown and get the two-point conversion to tie. The game went into overtime. Couldn't do anything on the first possession. Then Vegas, uh, Daniel Carlson made his fifth field goal of the game to, to seal the deal on that and uh, give my Cowboys their third loss in the last four games. So um, the Cowboys, though, info on them, they've been dealing with a mild COVID outbreak. Of course, Amari Cooper had tested positive a couple weeks ago. Um, he missed the Thanksgiving game, and he actually had missed the game before that against Kansas City. So um, he is coming back this week against New Orleans. So we'll see how he does. But this past week, after the uh, Thanksgiving game, it was announced that Mike McCarthy, head coach for the Cowboys, along with uh, a total of five other assistant coaches, have tested positive. So uh, a little bit of a COVID issue going on in Dallas, although Dallas, like I said, they get Amari Cooper back. Demarcus Lawrence has been activated from the injured reserve, and he is going to play in uh, that Week 13 Thursday night game. So that's a huge get for the Cowboys. Randy Gregory is still a week or two away, but uh, Cowboys are getting back to full health on the player front, which is exactly what they need uh, after losing three or four. Uh, some other NFC news, the Carolina Panthers, uh, running back Christian McCaffrey. He had played three games uh, since coming off of IR for the hamstring injury that cost him five games. So he missed five games, came back, looked really good uh, in those games, and then this past week, uh, first half, he suffered an ankle injury, uh, came out for one play in the second half, and then ended up going back to the bench for the rest of the game. And it was announced the next day uh, that he has been placed on injured reserve again, and this one is season-ending. So the injury, they haven't officially given us a specific diagnosis, but they have said that the injury is severe enough that McCaffrey is being placed on season-ending IR, which is just absolutely terrible. The dude's one of the best running backs uh, in the game. He just can't catch a break with his health. And it wasn't like they overworked him in those three games either. Um, so uh, not really sure what his deal is. Uh, fantasy football owners are banging their heads, uh, especially me. I traded for him. In one of my leagues, gave up a couple of a uh, couple of good players to get him, and uh, that trade just came back to bite me. But uh, hopefully, he's back healthy next year uh, with with health. But uh, you just he just seems to not be able to be trusted now with his health. Um, over in the AFC, the Cleveland Browns they lost another one to the Baltimore Ravens there on Monday night, and in that game, their All Pro right tackle Jack Conklin tore his right patellar tendon, so he's out for the year. Uh, and it was his first game back from injured reserve uh, in that uh, just a brutal loss for the Browns. Right? The, every, every game to them at this point um, is, their, is their season. They're fighting for their playoff lives every week. Uh, you know, most teams obviously are. It's not like – but with Cleveland in that division, with Cincinnati and Baltimore um, and Pittsburgh, I guess you can't really count them out just yet – uh, the Browns are 
are uh, are facing an uphill battle. They got a bye week this week, but uh, we'll see what happens after the bye. Over in Buffalo, the Bills, of course, they demolished the Saints on Thanksgiving night, and in that game, their all-pro corner, Tredavious White, he tore his ACL, and he's out for the year. So uh, Buffalo defense has been one of the best defenses so far this year. Uh, they're always tough against the run, um, but they've just been playing really good defense all around, uh, and they lose a key piece there in Tredavious White. So keep an eye on that. They are in a crucial division fight with the New England Patriots who have made a resurgence. Uh, Mac Jones looks like the real deal. You just never count out Bill Belichick. Uh, And then last piece of news in the AFC, the Las Vegas Raiders. In that game against the Cowboys on Thanksgiving, quarterback Derek Carr became the first quarterback in Raiders franchise history to pass for 30,000 yards. So uh, Carr is not flashy by any means. Um, I wouldn't say he's a uh, great quarterback, and I wouldn't say he's a terrible quarterback. He's just good. He's average to good, um, but he is the first quarterback in Raiders franchise history to eclipse the 30,000 passing yard mark. Uh, but an interesting piece of NFL news, if, if you follow the NFL draft, you know, the NFL draft order, uh, you may have seen this, but after week 12, so at the conclusion of week 12, the current top 10 NFL draft order as it sits right now through 12 weeks. The first overall pick is the Detroit Lions. Second overall pick is the Houston Texans. The third overall pick is the Jacksonville Jaguars. Not really a surprise with any of those three. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Listen to these next six picks. The New York Jets, fourth. The New York Jets, fifth. The New York Giants, 6th. The New York Giants, 7th. Philadelphia Eagles, 8th. Philadelphia Eagles, 9th. Carolina Panthers, 10th. That's right. You are, Three teams have back-to-back picks inside the top 10 as it currently sits right now. The fourth overall pick, the Jets, uh, they got that pick via the Seattle Seahawks and the Jamal Adams trade. So the way that Seattle's playing... The Jets currently have the fourth and fifth pick. The Giants, they currently themselves own the sixth overall pick. The seventh overall pick comes to them via the Chicago Bears when they traded up this past draft to draft Justin Fields. So uh, you have that. Uh, So the Giants pick sixth and seventh currently, and then eighth and ninth are both the Philadelphia Eagles. The Eagles currently own the eighth pick, and they got the ninth pick via the Miami Dolphins in a trade there. So uh, very interesting. The first time I've ever seen a draft order that has multiple teams picking back-to-back inside the top 10. So that's obviously going to change over the next uh, few weeks of the season. But uh, I would not be surprised uh, the way Seattle's playing. The Jets are probably going to have two picks inside the top 10. Same with the Bears. I don't see them winning a whole lot to improve the Giants draft pick, and then Miami's actually been playing pretty good football. So uh, the Eagles may lose that top 10 pick, may may move it down a little bit, but very interesting there uh, with regards to the standings and how the top 10 of the NFL draft order looks through week 12. But um, lots of NFL football coming up 
uh, good competitive division races. So uh, next episode, we'll go through and update you on the full standings uh, record by record like we normally do. But we'll move from the NFL over to college football, and uh, we'll do a playoff rankings update, uh, the week 14 rankings update here in college football. But before we do, week 13 gave us some good games, and the biggest game of them all was Ohio State and Michigan. It was number two Ohio State against number five Michigan, and it was at the big house in Ann Arbor, and uh, snowy conditions, and... uh, Michigan, you know, the game was really dominated by Michigan. They had almost 300 yards on the ground. Uh, Hassan Haskins had almost 200 yards rushing, five touchdowns. It uh, was just a complete beatdown by Michigan. They won by 15 points. And in doing so, Michigan ended their eight-game losing streak against Ohio State. In fact, the last Michigan starting quarterback to beat Ohio State was Denard Robinson back in 2014, I believe. 13 or 14. Michigan also, with the victory, ended Ohio State's 29-game win streak against the Big Ten opponents, which is very impressive. They also ended Ohio State's 21-game winning streak against ranked Big Ten teams, and they became the first-ever Big Ten team to defeat Ryan Day since he took over as head coach. That falls in that 29-game win streak against the Big Ten opponents. So Michigan did quite a bit of stuff there, and in doing so, uh, basically secured their chance to clinch a playoff berth this weekend. Now, this weekend in college football is conference championship weekend. So all of the conferences will be holding their uh, conference championship games. And so I'll just run through those matchups real quick. The American Athletic Conference, the AACs, Cincinnati versus Houston. Both of these teams are ranked. Of course, Cincinnati is the first non-Power 5 school to get into the top four of the playoff rankings. Uh, If they win, I I believe they're in. I'll get into that in just a moment. But uh, I like for Cincinnati to finish out 13-0 there, although Houston's going to be quite a bit of an issue for them. In the uh, Atlantic Coastal Conference, the ACC, it's Wake Forest versus Pitt. Uh, I like Pitt in that one. Uh, Big 12 is Oklahoma State versus Baylor. Uh, They played earlier this year, and Oklahoma State was victorious by 10 points. And I like for Oklahoma State, the way their defense is playing, I like Oklahoma State to win. Again, more on them here in just a second. The Big 10 is Michigan versus Iowa. Uh, I just don't see Iowa winning. Uh, Iowa's lost a couple of bad games. They haven't looked real good in several others. And Michigan is just a wagon right now. So I like the Wolverines to come out on top there. Conference USA. It is the previously undefeated University of Texas at San Antonio, the UTSA Roadrunners. Uh, They will be playing uh, Western Kentucky. Now, UTSA did lose to North Texas last weekend, but I do like the Roadrunners to advance there and win that matchup in the MAC. Mid-American Conference, Northern Illinois versus Kent State. That's a pick I'll just go with the uh, Huskies there in Northern Illinois to win that one. In the Mountain West, it's Utah State versus San Diego State. Uh, San Diego State is ranked in the playoffs uh, rankings that we'll get to here in a minute, so I do like the Aztecs to win there. The Pac-12 is a rematch of two weeks ago. It's Oregon and Utah. Utah. Uh, Utah put an absolute beatdown on Oregon uh, in Utah. 
a couple weeks ago uh, to the tune of, I think it was like 35 to 7 or 38 to 7, something like that. Just completely dominated that game. Over in the SEC, Southeastern Conference, it's Georgia and Alabama. It's one versus three. A lot of implications for the playoffs right on that game. We'll get into that in a second. And then the final conference championship game is the Sun Belt Conference, and that's Louisiana versus Appalachian State. Uh, I like Louisiana to win. Uh, they lost, of course, their coach uh, that we'll get into here and around the island. Um, but uh, give me the Raging Cajuns the way that they've been playing this year. So now that brings us to the updated college football playoff rankings for week 14. I'm going to go backwards from 25 down to 1, and I'm going to zip through the first 15 or so picks because uh, – first 15 teams because I don't – none of them have a chance to make the playoffs. In fact, there's only about six, maybe seven teams that legitimately have a chance to be inside that top four. So number 25, Texas A&M. Number 24, Louisiana. Number 23, Kentucky. Number 22, Arkansas. Number 21, Houston. Number 20, Clemson. Number 19, San Diego State. Number 18, North Carolina State. Number 17, Utah. Number 16, Wake Forest. Number 15, Pitt. Keep in mind, those two play each other. That'll be a good game. Number 14, Oklahoma. 13, Iowa. 12, BYU. 11 is Michigan State. 10 is Oregon. Uh, 9 is Baylor. And this is where I think uh, all of these teams here, with the exception of Ole Miss at number 8, have a chance to get into the playoffs. So 9 is Baylor. 8 is Ole Miss. 7 is Ohio State. 6 is Notre Dame. 5 is Oklahoma State. 4 is Cincinnati. 3 is Alabama. 2 is Michigan. And 1 is Georgia. So, with that information and the games that we just talked about in the conference championship, there's a lot of implications uh, for the playoffs in various games. <clears throat> and so I think Georgia, you can go ahead and give them one of the four spots. Um, they're 12-0 and right now. Uh, if they beat Bama, they're obviously going to stay number one. Uh, if they lose to Alabama, they're still going to be in the top four. Alabama would most certainly clinch a playoff spot at that point as the SEC champs. So uh, Alabama has a chance to uh, make the playoffs with a win. If they lose, I do believe they're out pending a couple of these other games. I can see the committee playing favorites. If it's a close game between Bama and Georgia and say Georgia wins on a last-second field goal, I do believe that there is still uh, a, a possibility that Alabama squeaks into the top four. Uh, they would need some help from either Michigan, Cincinnati, or Oklahoma State to make that possible. But the eye test tells you, uh, and this is where this, the subjectivity comes into play with these rankings, is that Alabama probably is one of the four best teams in the country. Um, and I think if they played Cincinnati head-to-head, -head, they'd probably kill them. But um, we have to go with what we've seen on the field um, for now. So uh, Georgia's claiming one of those four spots. Now, Michigan plays Iowa. I think they're going to win that game relatively easily. So if Michigan wins, they're in because they're ranked number two. So if Michigan wins, they're in. That's two of the four spots. Alabama, we just talked about it. If they win, they're in. If they lose, more likely than not, they're probably out. Cincinnati at number four. 
I think it's a win and in situation for them, uh, especially because Alabama's right in front of them. And if Alabama loses and Cincinnati wins, Cincinnati's most certainly going to be in that top four. So Cincinnati's got a lot riding on. Now, the, the, the committee and everybody in America is looking for Cincinnati to trip up and looking for Cincinnati to get get booted from that top four. I think I don't think there's a, a great public belief that Cincinnati is the 12-0 team that they purport to be. Um, if you ask head coach Luke Fickle, I think he's he's adamantly defended his team and says that they are one of the four best teams in the country, uh, as he should. But uh, we'll let their play do the talking on Saturday against Houston, who is ranked number 21. So that's going to be a good, good matchup there. Uh, but Cincinnati... I don't know. Uh, the reason I say, because here's the deal. If Georgia loses to Alabama and Michigan wins, you got those three teams will all be in. So if Alabama beats Georgia, Georgia's still in. Michigan wins, they're in. Alabama lose, uh, wins the game, they're in. So there's three of the four. If Cincinnati loses, um, Oklahoma State, Notre Dame uh, could possibly pass them. Now, Oklahoma State, they're sitting at number five. They have to beat Baylor. No doubt about it, and that would put them at twelve and one with a conference championship. I think there's a possibility that Oklahoma State passes Cincinnati, even if Cincinnati wins. Now, the caveat is that again that Georgia Alabama game in the SEC. I'm assuming that Georgia is going to win, uh, and if that's the case, if Georgia beats Alabama and Oklahoma State wins, Oklahoma State is in. I do not believe there's any question about that. Um, But if Alabama and Michigan both win, that's three uh, of the playoff spots, then that would basically be a tiebreak between Cincinnati and Oklahoma State. Whoever wins out of those two would be that fourth spot. And if Cincinnati were to lose, uh, I I think Oklahoma State would easily pass them with a victory. Now, if... um, Notre Dame sitting there at number six. The problem is, is they do not play this weekend. They do not have a conference championship game. They're in the ACC. Technically, they play an ACC schedule uh, with some Big Ten teams sprinkled in, but they do not uh, have eligibility to participate in the ACC championship game as an independent school. So uh, Notre Dame's going to be left out to dry. Notre Dame lost to Cincinnati earlier this year. So um, as long as Cincinnati uh, wins or keeps winning, uh, Notre Dame's not going to pass Cincinnati. And I doubt that, I doubt that Notre Dame passes Oklahoma State, um, unless Oklahoma State loses. Uh, Ohio State, very slim chance to get in. Uh, they're going to need uh, Michigan, Alabama, and probably Cincinnati to lose. They're going to need three of those teams to lose in front of them, which is not likely. Um, I'd say two at most, being Cincinnati and Alabama. I uh, don't. I just don't see Iowa beating Michigan at this point. But Ohio State's very slim chance. Ole Miss has absolutely zero chance to get in at ten and two. They're not playing in the SEC championship game, so they are. I don't know why they're ranked as high as they are, because they're not playing uh, in the college football playoffs. Baylor at number nine. That would be the very last team that I think would possibly have a chance. They obviously have to beat Oklahoma State. They would be eleven and two as the Big Twelve champs. And the only way that they're getting in is if, again, Michigan, Alabama, and Cincinnati, they would probably need – because they, if they beat Oklahoma State, they would pass Oklahoma State. 
So if Baylor wins, they would need Cincinnati, Alabama, and Michigan. They would need two of those three teams to lose, which is possible, like we just talked about. So Baylor doesn't need as much help, um, you know, maybe as Ohio State, since Ohio State's not playing uh, in a championship game. But if Baylor wins, um, they could certainly jump up into that four or five slot, uh, depending on what happens there with Michigan, Bama, and Cincinnati. So it is going to be a wild and hectic conference championship weekend. I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, I would say I would not be surprised if if um, the the final four uh, next week or next episode when we when we talk about it, if the the top four is Georgia, Michigan, Cincinnati, and Oklahoma State in that order. Um, I would say that's probably how I would project it to turn out. But again, college football this year, if you've learned anything, it's that you can't trust. But we'll stay in the college ranks here and go over to college basketball, do an AP Top 25 rankings update for week four in men's basketball. There's been quite a bit of movement so far. This is the first time I believe we've covered men's college basketball so far this season. Uh, Maybe we did a a preseason rankings check, the first uh, first poll, but we are in week four. Uh, The number one team in the country at the moment is Duke, uh, although they just they were 7-0, and had a big win over Gonzaga uh, last weekend, but uh, just lost to Ohio State the other night, unranked Ohio State team. So I would expect Duke's stay up top to be short-lived. Their freshman phenom, Paulo Bancaro, that dude, uh, I've seen a couple of Duke games so far. That guy is absolutely incredible. Um, he's 6'10", 250 pounds. He's got range, athleticism. Uh, he, I him or Chet Holmgren from Gonzaga will be the first overall pick in the draft. No question about it. Duke's still a force to be reckoned with. They're still probably going to win 30 games this season and um, likely end up as a as a one seed for sure. The number two team in the country is Purdue. They uh, are undefeated at the moment, and they are a really good team. They have pretty much everything. They have... Uh, Big men, uh, you know, down low. Uh, they got intermediate scoring, perimeter scoring. They're they're really a good team. So watch out for them. They'll probably take over the top spot here in week five in the polls. Number three is Gonzaga. Uh, they only fell two spots after losing to Duke, uh, and for good measure because it was a it was only a three point game. Gonzaga's just really good. Drew Timmy and uh, Chet Holmgren, the freshman. He, uh, like I mentioned, him or Paulo Bancaro will be the first overall pick. Uh, Holmgren's really good, just seven feet, seven six wingspan, I believe, and um, he's just he's an incredible player. That team has all kinds of depth scoring. They pass the ball better than anyone in the country. So Gonzaga, they're going to win thirty three, thirty five games this season. Number four is Baylor. Uh, they're they're all they're starting off right where they left off last season. Really, they're seven and zero right now. And um, just looking really good. Uh, back up to Gonzaga real quick. They lost to Duke, uh, but they have they still have two top five wins this year. They beat number two UCLA and uh, number five Texas um, a couple weeks ago when the season opened. So uh, they they do have two top five wins already in uh, their first seven games. Uh, the number five team currently is UCLA. They dropped three spots after losing to Gonzaga, uh, but they're still a great team. 
Johnny Juzang, he's leading the charge there for the Bruins. Number six, Villanova. Uh, they're up one spot. Uh, Jay Wright's teams always come to to play. Uh, they're they're four and two though, so they've they've lost two out of their first six. Uh, number seven is Texas, and Chris Beard's got them boys rolling. A uh, lot of lot of new faces in Austin. They're still trying to get everything going. They've only played five games. They're four and one. Of course, their only loss was to Gonzaga in the opening opening week, but uh, they they look good. They're in that rugged Big Twelve though that. Uh, uh, Kansas is number eight, so you have three Big Twelve teams in the top eight. Uh, Kansas is five and one, uh, although they did lose uh, over the Thanksgiving week. I forget who it was against, but it was uh, oh, it was uh, Dayton. Dayton beat Kansas on a last-second buzzer beater uh, putback. So uh, that's Kansas's only loss. Number nine is Kentucky. Number 10 is Arkansas. They're 6-0. and They're starting out like their football team did this year, just looking really good. Um, tough team to play. Number 11, Arizona. Number 12 is BYU. Uh, now, BYU just lost uh, the other night to Utah Valley, so that was a brutal loss. A uh, team they probably should have beat by 20. Uh, they ended up losing to, so we'll see what that does to them in the polls in Week 5. But 13 is Tennessee. 14 is Florida. 15 is Houston. Now they're down three spots from where they were, but they're still five and one. Uh, number 16 is Alabama. They're six and one. Uh, they actually dropped six spots this week after uh, after a loss, but they play Gonzaga this weekend. So they have a chance to uh, really make some make some progress here in the in the rankings if they can beat Gonzaga. But uh, that'll be the game to watch this weekend for sure. Number 17 is UConn, and UConn 6-1. and one. Their only loss was this past week uh, in tournament in uh, Na- Nassau, Bahamas, or the uh, Battle for Atlantis, I think it was what it was called. And um, they lost to Michigan State, who was unranked at the time. But UConn, they're still up five spots uh, from where they were previously. They're 6-1. and one. Memphis is number 18. They're down nine spots. Uh, they're 5-1. and one. They probably have one of the most talented rosters, uh, especially with freshman uh, Imani Bates. Um, just a really solid team, uh, probably a top five roster, uh, but they just haven't been able to put it together uh, to the extent that you would have expected. Number 19 is Iowa State, another Big 12 team. They're 6-0. and Number 20, USC. They are 6-0 and as well. Number 21 is Auburn. And number 22 is Michigan State. Uh, Michigan State's 5-2. and two. They actually started the season unranked, which is uh, very odd to see Michigan State unranked, a Tom Izzo team. But they uh, had a big win over UConn, like I mentioned there, in the battle for Atlantis over Thanksgiving week. So that moved them into the top 25. Uh, three consecutive Big Ten teams here. So Michigan State's number two, uh, 22. Wisconsin's 23. They're 5-1. and one. They always seem to be uh, inside that top 25. Just a, a perennially good team there, uh, the Badgers. Number twenty four is Michigan. They're four and two, and uh, if you recall, they made it to the uh, uh, final four last year, I believe. A really good team. Started off the rankings a lot higher than they are now. Uh, they dropped four spots from last week, and uh, that's just not the same. For whatever reason, Michigan's just not not firing on all cylinders. They play in a big in the Big Ten, right? So it's a uh, a brutal schedule for the Wolverines as well, so uh, they, they'll have plenty of chances to make up some ground, but 
I don't I don't think anybody anybody expected Michigan to uh, lose two out of their first six games. And uh, lastly, number twenty five is Seton Hall. They're five and one. So we'll kind of update these rankings. Maybe uh, if we don't do it every every episode, maybe every other episode. Just uh, any anything major we'll talk about. But uh, college basketball is off and running. There was a lot of tournaments over Thanksgiving week, and uh, there'll be more probably the closer we get to Christmas. And um, you know Gonzaga, they're probably my favorite to win the title. Just I've watched several of their games. They just look really good. Duke is on another level as well. Uh, I would, uh, if I had to pick right now, I'd say Gonzaga and Duke are uh, battling it out for the national title. But we'll see how that prediction stays uh, as we move along here through the college basketball season. But we'll move on to the National Hockey League and uh, don't really want to do a full standings update. The teams have only played about probably three games or so each, two or three games in, in the last week, maybe maybe four, but it hasn't changed enough. The standings are still... Uh, pretty much what they were for the most part. A couple minor changes here and there, and we'll go over uh, just the the gist of it, give you a brief update. Uh, we'll start in the Eastern Conference, the uh, Metropolitan Division. The New York Rangers are actually on a four-game winning streak right now. Um, they're looking pretty solid. They got 31 points, which uh, is is pretty good at this point for where they're normally at. And then down at the bottom of that division – Philadelphia Flyers, they've lost three in a row. And then the last place in that division is the New York Islanders. They uh, actually had eight players in COVID protocol, so the NHL postponed some of their games last week, which is exactly what they did with the Ottawa Senators a couple weeks ago. The Islanders have only played 17 games, which is the fewest in the NHL uh, by two games, I believe. Uh, but the Islanders, I did. I talked about it last episode. They just opened a brand new arena, and they've yet to win in it. In fact, the Islanders are, are on an eight-game losing streak right now. Uh, they've only won twice in their last ten, uh, including eight in a row. They've lost, so just brutal right now for the Islanders. Only twelve points, sitting there in last place in the Metro Division. In the Atlantic Division, though, the Toronto Maple Leafs. They have won five games in a row including an absolute drubbing of the Colorado Avalanche this week. 8-3, to three, they won that game. And Austin Matthews had a hat trick in that one. And since Austin Matthews came into the league, which was the 2016-2017 season, that was his 42nd multi-goal game, which is second only in that time frame behind Alex Ovechkin with 45. And the next closest to Austin Matthews would be Leon Dreisaitl with 39 multi-goal games so uh, he's in good company there say what you want about Austin Matthews say what you want about the Maple Leafs uh, but that team is good and uh, Matthews is an elite goal scorer um, Tampa Bay Lightning they're they're sitting third in the Atlantic right now they uh, got some tough news last week their center Braden Point a terrific player he's going to be out for four to six weeks with an upper body injury so uh, keep an eye on that Tampa still has enough depth that uh, they should be fine but um, that's something to keep an eye on see how they do in these next few weeks the Detroit Red Wings they I talked about the youth movement the rebuild boy they just keep winning they uh, they've won four in a row and uh, they're hanging around they're five points clear of Boston now they've also played five more games but uh, they're they're showing like they can at least compete they're not quite the laughing stock that they were last year so 
uh, keep an eye on that. But over in the Western Conference, the Central Division, uh, Minnesota Wild. They've won four in a row. They're still sitting up top of the Central. Um, I just keep waiting for them to collapse, and that just does not keep happening. So uh, keep an eye on the Wild this year as a uh, as a good surprise uh, for the season. But the story of the Central Division so far in the last week since the last episode was uh, my Dallas Stars. Uh, they've won five games in a row. And they're looking really good at the right time. They've won seven out of their last ten, five in a row, and they've developed this great habit of where they're scoring a goal in the first 75 seconds of the game. So in this five-game winning streak, three of those games, they've scored within the first 75 seconds of the game, including one game they had two goals both uh, in that 75-second stretch. big part of that is uh, Rope Hints. Rope Hintz is a terrific young player for the Stars, and he became the 34th player in NHL history and the first since his teammate Jamie Benn back in April of 2014 to score a goal in the opening 75 seconds of back-to-back games. So uh, Rope Hintz is a big part of the Stars' five-game winning streak, and as long as he keeps scoring, I think the Stars are going to keep playing well. Uh, Braden Holtby's playing good in net. Same with Jake Ottinger. They'd called him up last week, and he got a couple of victories. Uh, he's looking really good. Uh, over in the Pacific Division, Edmonton, the Oilers, uh, have, they've won three in a row. They're still sitting up top. That division, uh, 16 wins already for the Oilers, which uh, is second in the league currently behind Toronto. So uh, they're playing really good. They came down to Dallas here and got beat. And Connor McDavid stayed off the score sheet, which was the first time all season that that's happened. So, um, but Edmonton's still good. Now, interesting stat for Edmonton Oilers defenseman uh, Chris Russell. He became the first player in NHL history to record 2,000 blocked shots. That is, over his career, he's blocked over 2,000 shots now, which is very impressive. Um, he was on the Dallas Stars several years ago, and I remember him as the elite shot blocker. Uh, it seemed like he would block several shots a game, which, um, it, you know, there's there's a reason that he uh, is the first one to block 2,000 shots. So, um, But s- some other noteworthy teams here in, in the Pacific, uh, Vegas Golden Knights, they're on a two-game losing streak. Um, you know, they're, they're pretty much 500 right now. They're 12 and 10, so they're, they can't really get out of neutral. Uh, the Seattle Kraken, uh, they've put together a, a couple good good games this week. They've won four out of their last uh, ten, and they are uh, now not in last place. That belongs to the Vancouver Canucks, so the, the Kraken are showing signs of life. Again, I've watched several of their games, still continue to watch them. They're, they're a fun team to watch, and uh, they're, they're playing pretty decent hockey. So uh, we'll see what happens there in that Pacific Division. But, again, the NHL's... Um, they've only played a few games since last episode, so we'll catch up on a full standings update uh, on the next episode. But we'll move on to the NBA, do a quick update in the NBA, similarly to what we did with the NHL uh, and the fact that we're not going to do a full standings update, just some highlights. Uh, Starting off in the Eastern Conference, the Brooklyn Nets, uh, they're still atop that East at 15-6. and And in those 21 games, uh, James Harden has scored 25 or more points in six of those games, and they've won all six. So the key to Brooklyn, apparently, is James Harden scoring 25 or more points, and then Kevin Durant can score 
uh, as many as he wants because that's what he does. The hottest team in the East is the Milwaukee Bucks. They are 14-8, and eight, and they have put together an eight-game winning streak, uh, which is uh, very impressive. And in addition to putting an eight-game win streak together, uh, they have signed center DeMarcus Cousins to a one-year deal. So I'm not sure how much action he'll see, but Boogie Cousins is now on the Milwaukee Bucks, who have climbed all the way up to third in the East as we speak. Uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers, I mentioned last episode that they lost Colin Sexton for the year. Uh, they've won three in a row. They're up to six. And then um, down at the bottom of the conference, both Toronto and Indiana have lost three in a row. And then the Detroit Pistons have lost seven in a row, currently last in the East. Although Cade Cunningham does look very impressive. Uh, let me back up to the Miami Heat real quick. Miami Heat, they've lost two in a row. They're sitting at fifth in the East right now at 13-9. and nine. Um, Some news came out yesterday, I believe, that their all-star center, Bam Adebayo, is going to be out for four to six weeks after he underwent some kind of surgical procedure on his thumb to repair his, I believe it was his UCL and his thumb um, ligament. So uh, they'll be without Adebayo for the next month. Uh, hopefully, I mean, he's a big piece of that team. So hopefully uh, they can keep things rolling there because they're, they're mid-pack there for a playoff spot currently. Uh, over in the Western Conference, the Phoenix Suns, um, if you've paid attention, you know just how hot they are. They're 18-3, and three, tied with Golden State for their best record in the West. Uh, they actually beat Golden State head-to-head the other night. Uh, and in doing so, the Phoenix Suns have put together a 17-game winning streak. Okay, just absolutely unbelievable. Um, basically haven't lost since the first week of the season when they started out 1-3. and three. Uh, So Phoenix has won 17 in a row. Um, Devin Booker... Did leave the game the other night early. Uh, we'll see what his status is, but the Suns are playing in an elite level right now. And so, too, are the Golden State Warriors, who are right right there with them at 18-3. and three. Um, The good news for Golden State is that they have officially recalled Clay Thompson, James Wiseman, and Damian Lee from their G League affiliate. So all three of them are going to be returning to the lineup here very soon. Uh, Wiseman's a big piece, obviously, seven feet tall, can rebound. Uh, they need that big man in the center. And then, of course, we all know what Clay, Clay Thompson can do. Uh, Splash Brothers with Steph Curry. And, um, yeah, with the, with the way that, San, uh, that Golden State's played so far this year, uh, Steph Curry is, again, squarely in that MVP conversation. But Golden State looks like a, a just an absolute machine. Um, again, just... Watch out for those two. It's it's this at this point. It's pretty much a two horse race uh, that I can see. Uh, my Dallas Mavericks. They're hanging around. They're eleven and nine. They're fourth in the West currently. Uh, just got Luca back a couple games ago. Kristaps Porzingis is still playing really good basketball. Uh, the Lakers. They've won two in a row. Uh, LeBron James landed on the COVID protocol, so we'll see how long he's out. But um, they're twelve and eleven, sixth in the East. The Clippers continue to free fall. They've lost three in a row. They're playing 500 basketball at 11 and 11. And then the Denver Nuggets. Uh, they're currently 10th in the West at 10 and 11, but they took a huge blow when uh, it was announced this week that their forward, Michael Porter Jr., 
he uh, has undergone a surgical procedure on his lower back, and he will miss, quote, an indefinite period. So uh, I don't know. Uh, he had some health concerns coming out of college. I don't know if it was his back, but um, I don't know if we see Michael Porter again this year. Uh, we might, but it's not going to be anytime soon, uh, maybe around the playoffs or so. But that's a tough break for the kid because he just signed a $100 million contract extension in the offseason. So um, that's tough for Denver, too, because he was a big – him and Nikola Jokic are – uh, big pieces to that that offense. Um, the Oklahoma City Thunder have lost seven in a row, and believe it or not, the last place Houston Rockets at five and sixteen have put together a four game winning streak. So they started off one and sixteen, and now they are five and sixteen. So they are no longer officially the worst team in basketball. That still that belongs to the Detroit Pistons, but uh, they are not far off. So again, the NBA season still really young, and uh, we can do a full standings update uh, on one of the next uh, episodes. But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island, and that is where we do some quick news topics from across the various sports. And this is one of the more loaded and interesting Around the Island segments that we've ever had, Uh, and we're going to jump right into it in college football. And it has just been absolute bedlam since uh, the last episode uh, the coaching carousel is just in full swing, and it has completely shaken the college football world to its core. And we talked last week about Penn State coach James Franklin and Michigan State coach Mel Tucker being two names floating around for some high-profile jobs that were available. Well, Penn State, we talked last week, signed Coach Franklin to a 10-year, $75 million extension. And immediately after we dropped... Last week's episode, Michigan State locked up Mel Tucker on a 10-year, $95 million contract extension to stay in East Lansing for the next decade. And Michigan State, they had some boosters step up and front the money for the contract uh, because they loved the direction that Mel Tucker has their program headed. Now, if you recall, Mel Tucker actually got his coaching start as a graduate assistant here at Michigan State uh, back before he uh, he was coaching under Nick Saban at the time, believe it or not. So he does have ties to East Lansing, and uh, he will be there for uh, at least you know, the contracts for 10 years. But, you know, again, uh, we'll see how long that lasts. But he's still certainly in good there, $95 million for the richer. But the coaching carousel that I talked about, it's been really going spinning so fast that I don't even really know where to start Uh, Of course, we have a couple of major signings that have happened, but we're going to start off, I guess, with a few of the minor, I guess you can call them minor signings. Um, TCU became available uh, about a month ago after they fired Gary Patterson. Well, SMU head coach Sonny Dykes is leaving SMU, and he's gotten hired as the new head coach of TCU to replace the legendary Gary Patterson. Now, Sonny Dykes has really brought the SMU program back. So over the last three years as the SMU coach, uh, he's gone 10-2, and 7-3, and and 8-3. So he's really developed SMU into a, a reputable program. Now the good news for Sonny Dykes is that he's just moving from Dallas to Fort Worth. So there's a chance he might not even have to move houses. Um, kind of a short move. I don't, you know, I get... SMU is not in the 
in a Power 5 conference yet. Um, and TCU is, so I guess that would be the draw to leave SMU. But uh, I think it was a good hire for TCU. We'll see if uh, – I know immediately after that announcement, uh, Sonny Dykes was able to flip two four-star commits uh, from SMU over to TCU. So we'll see how that goes. But Sonny Dykes' replacement at SMU was named, and basically immediately after that broke, and it was Miami, Florida's offensive coordinator, Rhett Lashley. Now, Lashley is going to finish out this season as Miami's offensive coordinator. But before becoming the OC at the University of Miami, Rhett Lashley was actually the SMU offensive coordinator for two seasons uh, under Sonny Dykes. And he led the Mustangs to 41.8 points per game in 2019, which was good enough for seventh in the country. So at this point, we have TCU and SMU jobs both filled The University of Washington, the Huskies have hired Kalen DeBoer to be its next head coach. Now, DeBoer is currently the head coach of Fresno State when he got hired just now, where he compiled a uh, 12-6 record over the past two seasons, including 9-3 this year. So, But prior to coaching at Fresno State, uh, DeBoer was the offensive coordinator at Indiana in 2019, And then the two years prior to that, he was the offensive coordinator at Fresno State. So he has ties to Fresno, um, you know, that that northern Pacific Northwest area. And so the University of Washington felt that he was the right man to take over the University of Washington program. Now, Washington State, if you recall, back on October 18th, they fired then head coach Nick Rolovich for not being in compliance with the state's vaccine mandate. So that left Washington State's head coaching job uh, available. Well, they have named Jake Dickert as their permanent head coach after agreeing to a five-year contract with him. Now, Dickert was uh, currently in his second season as Washington State's defensive coordinator, and he was elevated to the head coaching spot as an interim back on that October 18th uh, date. So... Uh, Dickert's been in the program for a month and a half already as as interim coach, so they just decided to name him the permanent coach. But those are the, I guess you could say, minor hires that have happened. The bigger splashes that have occurred, of course, as we went into this coaching carousel, the jobs that were open were uh, th- featured three of the top ten most prominent football programs in America being USC, University of Southern California, LSU, it's Louisiana State University, and then the University of Florida. Well, Florida hired Billy Napier to be their next head coach. Now, Billy Napier has spent the last four seasons as the head coach of the Louisiana Ragin' Cajuns, and he's led those Ragin' Cajuns to 10 or more wins in each of the past three seasons, getting them into the AP Top 25 rankings multiple times. So he obviously has been a program changer there at Louisiana, obviously not dealing with the same level of recruits that he will deal with at Florida. But prior to Billy Napier's arrival at Louisiana, they had never won 10 games in a season in program history, and he's done it the past three seasons. So uh, he is a former associate coach under both Nick Saban uh, of Alabama, and Dabo Swinney of Clemson. So he's got good coaching history. Anytime you're part of the Saban tree, 
you're always going to get uh, more looks, and that's exactly what happened. So Napier, Billy Napier has been hired as the Florida Gators head football coach. But the two that absolutely changed the landscape of how this coaching carousel uh, has gone down were the USC and the LSU jobs. And the first of those to be announced was the USC job. The USC has hired Oklahoma head football coach Lincoln Riley to be their new head coach, which was just absolutely mind-boggling because uh, Oklahoma played this past Saturday at Oklahoma State in the Bedlam game and lost a kind of a heartbreaker, uh, put together a good final drive. So that game ended late on Saturday, and reports were, uh, per well, per an interview with Lincoln Riley on the Scott Van Pelt Sports Center, uh, Lincoln Riley said that uh, negotiations with USC began very early Sunday morning uh, to the tune that he only got about two hours of sleep after that Bedlam game. So, um, you know, I had read a report on Sunday, uh, or maybe it actually broke, I think, like the third quarter of the Bedlam game that Riley was in contract talks with LSU. And then we wake up Sunday and see that he's signed with USC. So that was that was pretty and he Lincoln Riley was asked post game of Bedlam if he was going to be the next head coach at LSU and he said I will not be the next head coach at LSU, which was very truthful because he's the head coach at USC. But uh, Lincoln Riley of course was the offensive coordinator under Bob Stoops um, before he retired. So Lincoln Riley has spent the last 5 seasons as the Oklahoma head coach in which all he did was win. Uh, he was 55-10. and 10. He won four Big 12 titles, made three appearances in the college football playoffs, and produced two Heisman Trophy-winning quarterbacks, Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray. So he's become known as the quarterback whisperer, uh, one of the best offensive minds uh, in college football. Uh, he's a great recruiter, and uh, he's only 38 years old. So he He's got a good rapport with a lot of these high school kids. Now, the contract details of the Lincoln Riley hire at USC are just absolutely preposterous. And I'll read them off here. The contract is for $110 million. The, the amount of years uh, is unknown. At least I have not seen it published, the amount of years on the contract. But even if that contract is for 10 years, that's $11 million per season, which is just absolutely, again, just insane. Um, so you figure he's in the, if it's less than 10 years, then it's obviously more than 11 million per season. So we're thinking between 11 and 14 million per season. Uh, now at Oklahoma, he was actually the fifth highest paid head coach making 7.6 million per season. So he's just about doubling his salary. And the USC is also buying both of Lincoln Riley's houses in Oklahoma for $500,000 over the asking price. And in addition to that, USC is buying Riley a $6 million house in Los Angeles. Okay, so he's got free living. And the cherry on top of this whole thing is that USC is also giving Lincoln Riley and his family unlimited use of the university's private jet 24-7. All right, so they're free to go wherever they want. Uh, whenever they want. So that that contract is absolutely just preposterous. Um, I completely understand why he did it. So following the 
news of his hire at USC, it's basically been mass exodus at Oklahoma. Okay, quarterback Spencer Rattler uh, and wide receivers Jaden Hazelwood, Theo Weiss, all former five-star recruits, have all entered the transfer portal. And there's talk that five-star receiver Marvin Mims, uh, sophomore, uh, along with Hazelwood and Weiss, is all there, he's also considering entering the transfer portal. And uh, probably the offensive MVP from the Bedlam game for Oklahoma was tight end Austin Stogner, and he has entered the transfer portal as well. So just been complete mass exodus. I'm sure we'll see more uh, as the football season progresses into the offseason. Um, and then on the recruiting front, uh, the top recruits from their 2022 and 2023 classes, including uh, five-star running back Relique Brown and 2023 number two overall recruit quarterback Malachi Nelson, both have announced their decommitments from Oklahoma. And shortly after they decommitted to o, uh, decommitted from OU, they committed to Lincoln Riley and the USC program. So I would actually expect Riley to pull several more high-profile recruits from Oklahoma over to USC, uh, especially with the pipeline that he's built there in California. And um, yeah, I would expect again more more departures from OU and more uh, recruits committing to USC. So take that all into consideration. I completely understand why Lincoln Riley uh, left OU to go to USC. There were reports that said that Lincoln Riley was completely against going to the SEC, which is where they're headed, uh, and I don't blame him. Um, I, I can understand that. As a Texas fan, I am a little nervous about Texas going over to the SEC with OU. Um, Sar- Steve Sarkeesian has coached in the SEC as an assistant, so I, I do have a little bit more confidence that he's aware of what to do. But, um, you know, Riley's Riley's chances of winning the conference at USC are much higher than they would have been staying at Oklahoma in the SEC. So more on that in a minute. But the other major hire was that of the LSU job. And LSU has hired Notre Dame head coach Brian Kelly as their new head coach. And LSU pried Kelly away from Notre Dame to the tune of a 10-year, $95 million contract. All right, so we're seeing a lot of these 10-year contracts, which is why I think Lincoln Riley's is probably 10 years, uh, which would make his value, uh, average annual value, $11 million. Brian Kelly's is 9.5 per year for 10 years. So, But this one was more of a head-scratcher for me uh, in terms of why Brian Kelly would leave. Um, he's built... He's been the head coach for Notre Dame for 12 seasons, all right? And he is the all-time winningest coach in Notre Dame football history. He passed Lou Holtz and Newt Rockney on that list with 113 wins in 12 seasons. He's built this program up. They have, as it currently sits, Notre Dame is ranked number six in the college football playoff rankings uh, with an 11-1 and record. We just talked about that a little earlier and then Notre Dame also has the current number four ranked recruiting class for 2022. So they're going to be good um, for the next. Uh, they've also had a few high profile commits in the 2023 class. So Notre Dame's going to be uh, in and around that top 10 in college football playoff top four for at least the next uh, three to five years with, with the recruits that they're getting. So um, I don't completely understand why Brian Kelly would build this up 
12 years in the making to an elite program and then just dip out. Uh, I get money talks, right? And it's easy for us to sit here and criticize the man for making that decision. Uh, I'm sure he's making more money at LSU than he is at Notre Dame. Um, the Notre Dame athletic director in a press conference after Brian Kelly's departure said that Brian Kelly had been kind of, there'd been some writing on the wall statements that have kind of gone down over the past couple seasons. So it wasn't a complete shock. You know, uh, Brian Kelly did take Notre Dame to a national title. Uh, they've made two college football playoff appearances since the college football playoffs uh, have been going on. They have not won the national title, but um, Notre Dame, the program itself is is similar to that of like the New York Yankees or the Boston Red Sox, just a very recognizable, iconic brand that a lot of top recruits want to go to. So, um, you know, I I get, again, he, so here's the deal. Lincoln Riley's was a no-brainer. They're, they're throwing the world at him. They offered him the world. They're paying for his moving expenses, his house, uh, you know, giving him basically double his salary, and he gets to move from Norman, Oklahoma to Southern California. Like, I get it. I would do the same thing. Uh, recruiting in California, there's, you know, California is one of the top three states for high school football. So he's, he's going to be able to retain a lot of that California talent, at least on the offensive side of the football. And I do believe that um, Lincoln Riley's path to a Pac-12 championship is much easier than Brian Kelly's path to an SEC championship will be at LSU because LSU is still a couple of years away from being relevant again. Uh, after that record-setting 2019 uh, national championship with one of the most historic rosters in all of college football, um, you know, LSU's kind of gone backwards the last couple of years. So Brian Kelly's going to have to build LSU up into being an elite program, especially in the SEC, especially since Texas and OU are coming over. That complicates things even more. And, you know, if you're if you're asking me, you know, who's more likely to make the college football playoffs first? I think it's Lincoln Riley. Uh, I can see Lincoln Riley taking a, a four-win USC team. I would not be surprised if USC won 10 or 11 games next year with Lincoln Riley. The way they're getting these recruits and the way they're going to hit the transfer portal, I would not be surprised if Lincoln Riley was uh, in the Pac-12 championship game next year with a chance to make the college football playoffs. I would, however, be surprised if next year – Brian Kelly had LSU in the SEC championship game competing for a playoff berth. That would be very surprising. With with where the programs are at, um, I think that Lincoln Riley's path, uh, annual path to the college football playoffs is much easier. You know, he only really has to compete with uh, Oregon uh, and Utah, so to speak, that are that are kind of the main teams each year that, that give him a run for his money. But LSU, on the other hand, has, of course – Alabama, Georgia, Ole Miss, Florida, Mississippi State, and then soon to be Texas and Oklahoma. So um, I get the allure of LSU, Death Valley. Um, you know, there's nothing like Death Valley on a Saturday night. I get that. Uh, and Brian Kelly's just wanting a change, I guess. But um, I do think that Lincoln Riley will turn USC around faster than Brian Kelly will LSU. And so... Uh, that, of course, left the Notre Dame head coaching vacancy open. And Notre Dame, you know, you figure how many high-profile coaches you could pull to come to Notre Dame. 
and uh, they ended up sticking in-house, and they have now officially hired their current defensive coordinator, Marcus Freeman, as their new head coach. And it was reported that uh, Marcus Freeman uh, had gotten a lot of support from the current players and, more importantly, the recruits uh, in the next cl- couple classes. And, and that's why um, that's why Marcus Freeman was ultimately chosen to be Notre Dame's head football coach. Now, Brian Kelly had been trying to convince Freeman to follow him down to Baton Rouge to be the defensive coordinator of LSU. Uh, and obviously, um, when he was offered the head coaching position at Notre Dame, he decided to stay. Now, the really interesting thing about Marcus Freeman is that he's only 35 years old. Okay, so he's three years younger than Lincoln Riley. And he's never been a head football coach. This season was his first as the defensive coordinator of Notre Dame. And prior to that, he had spent four seasons as the defensive coordinator uh, at Cincinnati under Luke Fickle. Now, that program obviously has been developed really good in and of itself. Uh, But prior to being the D.C. at Cincinnati, uh, Freeman had spent a couple years at Purdue and, um, you know, as a very, as various associate coaching roles. But, uh, yeah, Freeman, I, I, I'm not normally a fan of hiring a coach to a prolific program that doesn't have head coaching experience. But I think in this case, with the support that he's got from the players and the recruits, if you get your players to buy into a coach and your coach is relatable to the kids, which I think Freeman certainly is, then I think it could be a home run hire. Uh, Only time is going to tell on that. Freeman is going to take over immediately as the head coach, so he will coach them in whatever bowl game they end up in, uh, playoffs or not. And so uh, I do think the hiring of Freeman, while it's very interesting, I think it has uh, a much higher ceiling than it was originally uh, reported to be. I I think that Freeman will do really well. Uh, I saw a video that circulated uh, he made his entrance into the locker room after he was officially announced, and his team was screaming and ran up to him and hugged him and high five. And it just you buy into a coach like that. That Notre Dame has the talent, so if you put the talent and you combine it with a coach that they believe in and they want to play for, uh, then that can be special. So I do think that uh, Notre Dame made the correct decision to hire Marcus Freeman as uh, their head coach. But we'll move over to Major League Baseball. And the free agent hot stove here uh, has been hotter than it's ever been. Uh, an absolute ton of big-name free agents have already signed, uh, including some, some real game-changing signings. And we'll start off right here in Texas. Uh, my Texas Rangers, they have been the biggest spenders so far in free agency. Rangers started off by signing shortstop Corey Seager to a 10-year $325 million deal. Uh, from the LA Dodgers. He was the 2020 World Series MVP with the Dodgers. He's uh, 27 years old and just a fantastic hitter. Uh, The Rangers also then signed infielder Marcus Simeon to a seven-year $175 million contract. Now, Marcus Simeon had a career year this past year. He finished third in the AL MVP voting. He won a Silver Slugger and Gold Glove Award and uh, he just played on a very elite level. Had 45 home runs, just uh, absolutely incredible year for Simeon. So that gives the Texas Rangers a middle infield worth $500 million. And if that wasn't enough, 
Uh, the Rangers went out and signed starting pitcher John Gray to a four-year, $56 million contract to uh, compete for that probably second spot in the rotation, uh, and they weren't done there. They added some outfield depth. They signed outfielder Cole Calhoun to a one-year, $5.2 million deal. So a lot of money getting thrown out by the Rangers, which is exactly what they needed to do. They have a, a great uh, great farm system, great young talent coming up through the ranks, um, but they lost almost 100 games last year. So uh, in order for the Rangers to be competitive this year, they had to go out and sign some big-name players, which they have done. And reports are uh, Chris Young, the GM, has said that they are not done spending. So we'll have to stay tuned on that. But the New York Mets have also been extremely active in free agency, and they have uh, may have the best collection of free agents thus far. They started off by signing outfielder Starling Marte to a four-year, $78 million deal. Uh, he had 40 stolen bases last year, uh, just an elite base runner, good outfielder. And then they also signed outfielder Mark Canna from the Oakland A's to a two-year, $26.5 million deal. And then third baseman Eduardo Escobar, they signed him from the Brewers to a two-year, $20 million deal. All great signings just make that lineup very formidable. And to cap it off, the Mets then signed ace Cy Young winning pitcher Max Scherzer to a three-year, $130 million contract. And this pairs Max Scherzer with fellow Cy Young Award winner Jacob deGrom. And between the two of them, they have five Cy Young Awards uh, I know DeGrom kind of had some elbow issues late in the year last year, missed uh, quite a few starts, but if he can stay healthy, that is by far the best one-two punch at the top of a rotation. So that contract that Scherzer got makes his uh, annual salary $43.4 million, which is the highest in Major League Baseball history, and it's also higher than the current payrolls of this upcoming season of both the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Baltimore Orioles. The Pirates have a payroll of $40.2 million as it sits now, and the Orioles are at $37 million. So Scherzer is making more this upcoming year um, than the Pirates and Orioles' entire rosters. Now that's subject to change, obviously, if they decide to sign a, a free agent. But as it sits now, that's the case. Uh, the Seattle Mariners, they just barely missed the playoffs. They, they had to win their last game of the year to do so, and uh, they just barely missed the playoffs. Uh, they've made a couple of big moves. The first one came via a trade. Mariners acquired all-star second baseman Adam Frazier from the San Diego Padres in exchange for minor leaguers Ray Kerr and Corey Rosier. And uh, I just, uh, Frazier's a good top of the lineup bat. He's got some pop. And uh, he's a good contact hitter. Had uh, well over 100 hits last year. Uh, he's a good piece to that lineup. And then the biggest splash came when they signed the AL Cy Young winner uh, starting pitcher Robbie Ray to a five-year, $115 million contract. And now Robbie Ray had a career year, obviously, with the Toronto Blue Jays last year, winning the AL Cy Young. And since the Blue Jays missed out on re-signing Robbie Ray, they replaced him with starting pitcher Kevin Gossman, formerly of the San Francisco Giants. Gossman signed a five-year, $110 million deal with Toronto, so very similar contract to Robbie Ray. Now, we talked about the Angels on last episode signing Noah Syndergaard, a pitcher, to a one-year contract. Well, they've added to their pitching. They signed uh, closer Rysel Iglesias 
to a four-year $58 million deal. And uh, pitcher Michael Lorenzen got a one-year $7 million deal. So they are definitely solidifying their pitching there in Los Angeles. Uh, And then some other big money contracts that were given out. The Detroit Tigers signed Javi Baez, shortstop, to a six-year $140 million deal. Minnesota Twins re-signed outfielder Byron Buxton to a seven-year $100 million contract. Now Buxton was he had a, he was having a career year. He was hitting 306 and had 19 home runs in just 62 games last year, both of which are career highs uh, before he got hurt and missed the rest of the year. And uh, he also has speed for days. So uh, the Twins have re-signed him. Uh, the Chicago Cubs, they signed pitcher Marcus Stroman, three years, $71 million. Los Angeles Dodgers, they re-signed utility player Chris Taylor to a four-year, $60 million deal. Florida Marlins have signed outfielder Avicel Garcia to a four-year, $53 million contract. He's a good, solid outfielder, has been for the Brewers the last several seasons. And the Arizona Diamondbacks, one of the worst teams in baseball last year, if not the worst record-wise, they signed closer Mark Melanson to a two-year, $14 million deal. Now, Melanson led Major League Baseball in saves last year with 39. That, of course, was with the Padres. I don't know if he'll have quite that many in Arizona, uh, but he uh, solidifies the back end of the Diamondbacks' rotation or uh, bullpen. And then some one-year contracts that were given out. The Red Sox signed pitcher James Paxton to a one-year $10 million deal. Tampa Bay Rays have signed former Cy Young winner pitcher Corey Kluber to a one-year deal. And then the Baltimore Orioles signed second baseman Rugnit Odor to a one-year deal. And then there was also a noteworthy trade that went down. The Milwaukee Brewers have acquired uh, outfielder Hunter Renfro from the Boston Red Sox in exchange for Jackie Bradley Jr., David Hamilton, and Alex Binales. Now, Bradley Jr. goes back. Of course, he, he was with Boston for so many years uh, so he is going back to Boston. Now, I go through all of those free agent signings to say the MLB is officially in a lockout. Uh, they are in a lockout because the MLB and the MLB Players Association failed to reach an, a new labor agreement by the December 1st deadline. So the league has locked out its players. And this is the first time Major League Baseball has been locked out in 26 years, um, which I think in that time frame the lockout lasted roughly 200 days so that would if it is the case this year hopefully it's not but the lockout happened early enough where they have a few months to kind of get it together before spring training uh, starts so that would be the hope there but uh, a lockout for those that uh, it sounds pretty simple but uh, a lockout um, is a labor relations tool and it's used by management to keep the employees and the players from working until a deal is agreed upon, the labor agreement. And so during this lockout, uh, team officials and players, they cannot communicate in any way, and the free agents cannot sign anywhere. Teams can also, uh, they cannot make trades during this time. So all that free agent frenzy happened uh, right before the deadline, so now uh, there will be no free agent signings or trades until the lockout has stopped. Now, prior to the lockout stopping, Major League Baseball had proposed, uh, as part of this labor agreement, an expanded playoff format, which included 14 teams, which is seven from each league. The best record in each league gets a bye, so that leaves the remaining six to compete 
in the wild card and divisional rounds. And uh, so out of those six teams, the remaining division winners would pick their wild card opponents, which is very unique. Uh, you don't really get to pick your playoff opponent, but the proposal has that in there. And then the higher seeded teams would host all three of the wild card games. So a uh, very interesting proposal by Major League Baseball. I think that would be uh, – I, I don't see how that wouldn't get approved. There's obviously more to the labor agreement than just the playoffs, but um, I would expect to see expanded playoffs. Uh, I think any any of the players would be uh, would would go for the chance to make more money, or uh, would you know have have a better chance to make the playoffs than than it currently sits. So um, keep an eye on that. But hopefully, Major League Baseball gets it figured out because pitchers and catchers usually report in February, and spring training is usually end of February, beginning of March before the season. Uh, kicks off at the end of March, beginning of April. So we're kind of facing a pretty tight time deadline for Major League Baseball if they want to get this lockout rectified. But for now, that is where we are uh, in Major League Baseball. Now I'm just going to kind of zip through. we got some NFL, NHL, NBA news. Just I'm going to rip through it, just some real brief topics. In the NFL, couple episodes ago talked about free agent running back Adrian Peterson signing with the Tennessee Titans. Well, he ended up playing a couple games for them. He scored a touchdown and then got waived uh, about a week and a half ago. But now Adrian Peterson has signed a deal with the Seattle Seahawks and uh, will be placed on their practice squad. So I'm curious to see the Seahawks running back room is just putrid. Got Alex Collins, uh, Rashad Penny, and Travis Homer, none of which uh, are really viable starters. So uh, I can see Peterson quickly getting called up to the active roster like he did with Tennessee. But over uh, in Tampa Bay, wide receiver Antonio Brown, he's been hurt the last four or five weeks. Uh, he's now been suspended for three games without pay for presenting a false vaccination card and misrepresenting his vaccination status. Um, Tampa Bay wide receiver Mike Edwards and free agent John Franklin the third were also suspended three games for the exact same thing. So all of those players have accepted their discipline and they are waiving their right to appeal. So we will not see Antonio Brown until week 17 of the NFL season. Over in the NHL, uh, the New Jersey Devils, they have re-signed their franchise center Jack Hughes to an eight-year $64 million contract. Uh, If you recall, Hughes was the number one overall pick back in 2019 He's played two seasons. This is his uh, third season with the Devils, and he's actually missed the last month due to a dislocated shoulder, but he he just returned to the lineup this past week. And uh, in this most recent 2021 NHL draft, the Devils uh, drafted his Jack's brother, Luke Hughes, uh, sixth overall, I believe, fifth or sixth overall. So the brothers will get to play together. Uh, but Jack Hughes is a New Jersey Devil for the next eight years. And then the uh, final piece of news in Around the Island deals uh, with the NBA. Uh, the Miami Heat and the Chicago Bulls, they are each going to lose their next available second-round draft pick for tampering violations related to the signings of Kyle Lowry and Lonzo Ball this past offseason. And the league had been investigating whether or not the teams and the agents 
had negotiated prior to the opening of free agency, which was set for 6 p.m. Eastern back on August 2nd. And both teams fully cooperated with the investigation, and uh, they ultimately found out that uh, Miami had been in contact with Kyle Lowry before the deadline, and Chicago had been in contact with Lonzo Ball prior to the deadline. So, But due to the team's cooperation, uh, the NBA lessened the severity of the penalty, only costing them a second-round pick. Uh, they could have been more severe, uh, the penalties, to the tune of uh, additional draft picks, $10 million fines, and uh, suspension of team executives. So uh, the NBA went pretty easy on the Heat and the Bulls. But uh, the last thing of note is this past week, uh, in an NBA game, we set a new NBA record, and it's not one that the losing team wants to be a part of. It was a game against uh, or the Memphis Grizzlies, played the Oklahoma City Thunder. And the Memphis Grizzlies won that game 152-79, to which was a 73-point margin of victory. And that was the largest margin of victory in NBA history. So that was the record there. Just absolutely unbelievable showing by the Grizzlies. They're doing it all without John Morant, who's been dealing with an injury. I believe he missed that game. But uh, nonetheless, to win by 73 points in a basketball game is, in the NBA is just absolutely absurd. Uh, Oklahoma City is obviously one of the, the worst teams in the league. They're the youngest team in the league, youngest average age on opening night. And uh, they have 17 uh, first-round picks over the next uh, six or eight years that we talked about that a couple episodes ago. So um, Oklahoma City is going to get better, but my goodness, they uh, – They took it on the chin there this week. Thanks for listening to the Sports Island Podcast. Be sure and find it on Facebook at Sports Island Podcast. I'm Rick Mitchell, and I'll catch you next time right here on the Sports Island Podcast, which is available everywhere you listen to podcasts.